This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello everybody and welcome to your sixth episode, episode six of Analyzing Anfield. I'm Christian Walsh and I'm here as always with Josh Williams. We are here 48 hours after Liverpool scraped through, got those three points that they desperately, desperately needed against Tottenham Hotspur. Praise be to Hugo Lloris, praise be to the ground, which Toby Alderweireld decided to kick rather than the football. Uh, we'll start then, Josh, obviously we're all on a massive high also, a little bit of a relief there as well. Uh, how did you see the game? I think the theme will will prevail here as we go on and on. You know, it's it's a hard game to quantify. It's a hard game to really analyse because it was just sort of to, to go a little bit colloquial off its head. Yeah, it was a very much a game of two halves, really. First half, we, for the large majority, dominated. Uh, and the second half went the opposite way and we got dominated whether that was to do with us sustaining the lead or not I'm not really too sure but it was a it was a very messy game like um, I mean if you, if you want to delve into the whole tactical aspects of it straight away yeah let's go for I it mean, we, we mentioned last week about um, Spurs being adaptable and that was the thing that we need to be wary of that's the thing that impresses us about them and that's exactly what we saw um, but before and before they had to adapt, the way in which we was we had the advantage over them was by just simply switching the play. They played a five-three-two formation initially. Um, so you know if you picture that formation, you obviously got the five at the back, then you got the midfield three tight in central areas, and then there's a big gap then out wide. So we've also spoke about in the past having a free man in order to progress into the final third, and we had two. We had Trent and we had Robertson. And we just constantly kept switching the place from side to side, moving spares back line um, all over the place, really. And it was just our way of dominating the game. They, they couldn't really lay a, lay a glove on us. We ended up taking the lead um, as a result, really. Robertson put on the cross, Firmino finished. And, um, yeah, we, we were on top. But I thought once we sustained the lead... Them switches seemed to stop. And then Poch switch formations, which, you know, we'll delve into a bit soon, I suppose. But we st- we stopped switching and then Poch changed his formation to totally prevent the switches from happening. But yeah, it was a, it was a messy game, but I think the first half we definitely edged. Is it, is it one of those games as well when you've got two high-quality managers? So, you know, it's not necessarily a chess game, but it certainly is a game of, of, of where two high quality coaches are pitting pitting their minds against each other and, and therefore things like this will happen, won't they? Yeah, yeah, very strategic. Two coaches that are um, very tactically astute. And but the they're both very different as well mm. in in certain aspects. Pochettino, as I've said, is very adaptable. All about little subtle adjustments and things like that. I mean he started off in a five three two formation. They went into a five four one at one stage, into a four four two at one stage. Um, all as a means of adjusting to the match scenario and what was required at the time. Whereas Liverpool, you know, we we just rely on the units. We rely on occupying space and we keep the four three three until we have to change really. And we didn't adjust, didn't change that until they equalised, and then we um, switched to a four two three one, Arigi on the left, and 
you know, I'm not too keen on that. If I'm honest, I'm not too keen on the whole reactive changes. I'd rather be a bit more proactive with that type of thing. But, and it's it's something that I, I said last week, we can learn from Spurs in terms of adjusting mid-game to, to suit what's required. But, um, you know, a win's a win, I suppose, and take the take the three points and run. Well, uh, we'll, we'll start, I suppose, then, in terms of individuals and and. and whatnot in terms of the midfield um, there's been a lot of debate today you wrote a piece uh, this morning Josh um, you know a lot of people have been reading it sharing it discussing it uh, not too many people have been lambasting it which is always nice um, but that midfield everybody knows the midfield I'm talking about it's Wijnaldum Henderson Milner the Champions League away midfield of your will you know it's played in uh, Man, C- um, Man City away Bayern, Bayern but obviously um Fabinho came on for Henderson because that was an early uh, change. Paris away, that was the same midfield. Napoli. Napoli. It's a midfield Klopp clearly likes. I think if Liverpool were to play a Champions League final tomorrow, and I think if they were to play Wolves at home with a win, guaranteeing them the Premier League title tomorrow, this will be the midfield three that starts. So why does he play this midfield? Why? What, what is it about it? Because it clearly doesn't get the results that a lot of the fan base desire. Um, it, it contains individuals, namely Henderson, who split the fan base. There are players who are left out of this, namely Fabinho, who could also be playing in this midfield three. So just what what is it about this midfield three? What, what do you think Klopp sees in it? And are fans right to be a little bit wary of it? Uh, yeah, I think w- with the midfield, the reason it's perceived so negatively a lot of the time is because it's not necessarily pleasing on the eye, really. I think that, 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 that's mm. what it stems from. Um, but regardless, it ultimately suits what we plan to do a lot of the time, especially in big games. Say, I mean, I used the example in the piece against Watford. I actually checked before and Fabinho actually played against Watford. But that's not the point anyway. The point in in that match was we scored five goals. All five assists came from our fullbacks. And if you've got such offensive fullbacks who are quality in the final third, then use them. And to use them you've gotta you've got to instigate that balance. So you play, you know, essentially defensive midfielders. They can then um, cover um, monitor counter attacks if the if the instigates from a from an opposition perspective, and it it works. And in the big games as well, you know we've talked in the past, haven't we? That play uh, pressing is our playmaker in the big matches. We we concede more possession, um, and we force the opponents into mistakes. And if that's the plan. And the plan is to simply win the ball um, through, you know, pressurising and things like that, getting tight and stuff, aggressive. Then, you know, the, the midfield three of Henderson, Wijnaldum and Milner does that job, forces mistakes, and then we are allowed to counter-attack through the likes of Salah, Mane and Firmino. The only issue this season with that is we have... No transitional threat in Ox. Oxley Chamberlain's the batting carrier, which I've said before mm-hmm. again. Um, he's able to drive with the ball at his feet and basically carry the ball from the midfield to the attack. This season, we haven't 
had that. Should have been Keita, probably. Possibly, yeah. I wouldn't put it past um, Klopp to be thinking that way. But for whatever reason, it's it's but it is a bit baffling that one, to be honest. Because I I've, I've gradually just tried to consider every option as to why maybe he's not playing this game, this game, this game. But he's he's still just not involved, and it's confusing because he's got all all the ability in the world. Uh, but yeah, that midfield is largely suited to what we want to do. In but ultimately, it depends on the way we plan to attack. That's what it stems from. Mm. If we plan to attack an opponent down the flanks like we did against Watford because their entire attack is central, then it makes sense to play a defensive midfield, defend the centre, attack down the flanks. Same against Spurs. Harry Kane, Christian Eriksen, Deli Alli, all through the centre, defend them and attack out wide um, where Danny Roses and Key and Stipia. And, it, you know, it worked. We were switching the play, as I said. We had the dominance. But we stopped really using that advantage once we scored. And, you know, Pochettino being, you know, the genius that he is, gradually adapted his formation to to counter that. But, as I said, the midfield, um, for the large majority, works. It's just against inferior opponents, opponents that you've just got to break down the defensive block. That's when the likes of Fabinho comes in. Keita, Lallana, Shaqiri, players like that. But for the large majority, we just need, you know, a tactically aware, aggressive midfield. And Milner, Henderson, Wijnaldum provide that. And the numbers are there, really. I mean, I mean you know, personally, personal opinion here, I, I thought Henderson had one of his worst games for Liverpool all season, uh, to, to the naked eye anyway. But, you know, both Henderson and Milner were the most, amongst the most frequent passes, certainly in terms of midfielders um, throughout the 90 minutes. And, you know, Henderson didn't even make the 90 minutes. So the fact that he's up there shows something, I feel. You know, Henderson and Wijnaldum were leading the interceptions, you know, joins highest with, with two apiece. Um, yeah, granted, you know, Spurs' midfield at times felt like it was just Musa Sissoko and, and Musa Sissoko, Sissoko alone. I know Deli Ali and Ericsson worked hard to, to, to make that midfield free, but it was... There are things, aren't there, sort of... You can see when you look at those numbers, as you were saying there, they switch the play, they recycle the ball, they, you know, they're leading the interceptions there, they press... As you say, it's the dirty work, isn't it? And and obviously that's something that Klopp really, really appreciates. And, you know, moving on from that, we'll talk a little bit more again about the, the, the fullbacks here. You know, the importance of Andy Robertson. Another assist for him, Josh. Uh, fantastic ball to Firmino. He's 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 having he's having a cracking season, Robbo, isn't he? He's, he's, he really has come on in the past 12 months even more than, than anyone could have imagined. Yeah, he's the, the best fullback in the league for me. Certainly left-back. Yeah. Uh, and if you got right back, fully enough right back, the, you know, his competition would be Trent <laughs> for, for like the number one spot. Um, trying to think of any others off the top of my head. Walker's had an alright season, Walker, but, yeah, but it feels like, yeah, he has had a good season. I think he's improved from last season. Um, I like Juan Bissaka, but he's still young. Well, I say he's still yeah. young, he's the same age as Trent, isn't he? Yeah, we've arguably got the two best fullbacks in the league, and he cost eight million, club. yeah, <laughs> combined eight million, yeah. But they, they, they provide a different dimension with the ball. And, you know, just another little note as well. The other week I looked into um, a left-back for City. Can't remember who it was. But Chilwell? Oh, Chilwell it was, yeah. Liverpool obviously did but, once before Robertson. Yeah, but at the time I looked into 
why Mendy isn't working. And I think he's played, I can't remember the exact figure, but it was something like he's played 13 Premier League matches. Something like that. Um, possibly 19 in all competitions since he's been signed. That might have been that, actually. 19 since he's been signed. That's appearances. So that that includes like 10 minutes against Burton when you're 10-0 up. Yeah. That kind of thing. Um, Robertson in the same period appeared 67, I think it was. Uh, so, you know, that's that's just another little indicator of um, how how high quality he is because I think av- availability is underrated as a trait, you know, for a player not to be injury prone and things like that. That's massive. That If, if you've got a player that never gets injured, such a benefit. Well, he's, Robertson's one of those. He's uh, Mendy there, 15, less than 1,500 minutes in uh, senior football for Manchester City over the past two seasons. Yeah, well, there you go. Fifty million as well, over fifty million. Which which is amazing. And as you say, the durability. I thought, you know, Trent, for example, as well. You know, most tackles alongside uh, Kieran Trippier. I thought Rose actually. I'm not a big fan of Rose again, but I thought Kieran Trippier um, was uh, sorry, not Kieran Trippier. I thought Danny Rose was uh, was was good against Liverpool, but I thought Trent matched him really well. And of course, it was his ball. Eventually, that sort of Salah nodded back in towards Larissa and the Bedlam ensued. So, you know, I suppose what we're learning here um, is that it's not all, and I think everybody knew this when Klopp arrived, but it's not all about individuals, is it, with, with Klopp? It's about systems, it's about how it all works alongside each other. Yeah, it's about the collective, yeah. Always has been with Klopp. Very much a unit, very much, um, you know, we are a team rather than individuals. We don't have a specific playmaker it's just about the team functioning as a unit. So, to an extent, when you're looking at the likes of Henderson and Milner and Wijnaldum and criticising the creativity, it, it doesn't ultimately come into it, providing the team is creating chances and scoring. And, and we are. We, we have done consistently since day one on the clock. And, yeah, the, the unit works. And if that involves one or two players fulfilling defensive roles then so be it but one thing I should mention though regarding what I was talking about before although that midfield trio is predominantly in to be somewhat defensive I didn't feel like he was against Spurs I thought they were wide open or it felt like that anyway mm. I mean it was like it was a bit like a pinball match yeah, it was. felt like Spurs were in behind our midfield more often than you ever really see mm. it's not very often that that happens so yeah, it was a strange match, but uh, I just thought that's worth mentioning because although they are usually very defensive and tactically astute and hard to break through, against Spurs we seemed a bit more open than usual. Just very quickly, you know, just do, do you feel like that's sort of getting towards the business end of the season as well? I'm, I'm thinking about, in particular here, Wijnaldum. I think Wijnaldum's played a hell of a lot of football. And I think over the past, I know we, we spoke about him in depth um, on, on the last episode of the podcast, but... You know, I'll try and get him up here and just see how many minutes he's played. But if I think he's probably he's got to be leading in terms of minutes played. He's certainly got to be up there. Um, James Milner has probably played a lot more than most thirty-three-year-olds would as well. So it's got to be interesting, I suppose. Do you reckon in the last six games of the season, well, and the Champions League, of course, to see if that midfield persists in these type of games? Because you know, there's been a lot of minutes in those legs this season. Less so Henderson because he's been in and out of the team, a little bit of injury. But Wijnaldum and Milner. Yeah, well, the player that does seem to be irreplaceable in Klopp's eyes is Wijnaldum. Mm. He's the one that seems to be rotated the least. 
and this is a complete guess, but I'd be surprised if this currently isn't Wijnaldum's, you know, most minutes. Do you know what I mean? In in, in a season, mm. um, I, I very much doubt he's he's gonna he's ever played as many minutes. He's, he's always been on the sly, like a player who plays more minutes than you think. But yeah. I think this season will probably. I'll I'll, I'll, I'll have a look at that. But yeah, especially since he's a midfielder as well, the ground that you've got to cover in a club team mm. as a midfielder. It's different with the likes of Van Dijk, for example, because he spends the majority of the match throwing. Yeah, but Wayne Alden's tasked with covering ground, covering depth, and that. He's actually fifth outfield, which surprised me. But he's certainly he's certainly in terms of central midfield, he's by far and away. Um, the the most frequently used. Uh, just this is just out of interest. Who do you reckon the most is in terms of minutes on the pitch this season? All for, comps, for but us. yeah, outfield player because Allison's obviously. Um, Virgil. Yeah, Virgil Van Dijk. Then it's Salah, uh, Robertson, Mane, and then Wijnaldum. Wijnaldum's played three thousand and thirty-one minutes, and then his next biggest um, c- competitor there in terms of central midfield is James Milner. Again, thirty-three years of age. Um, What's the difference? How far down? Well, so there's a uh, Wijnaldum on three thousand and thirty-one. Then there's Firmino, there's Trent, and then Milner's there on two thousand three hundred and sixty-two. See, that's a big difference. That's like six hundred and fifty minutes. Yeah, that's that's that's, that's a couple of games. Well, more than a couple of games. And then, funnily enough, Fabinho and Henderson are directly below them. Um, so yeah, in terms of central midfield, Wijnaldum and and has played a hell of a lot more minutes than anyone else, and then it's it's Milner after that. Just to use that this Wijnaldum chat as well as a little segue. I know we talked about him last week in depth about my you know what's the word? <laughs> what does he do? Yeah, my concerns about him and stuff. Not even concerns because I did try to puzzlement. Yeah, puzzlement. Yeah, I did try to say that I do like him, but I am baffled somewhat by his output and. I retweeted on my Twitter yesterday I um, his passing sonar. So a passing sonar is basically just a graphic of the direction and the length of a player's passes during a match. And Wijnaldum's is incredible. It's I've never seen anything like it. It's 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 like the passing sonar of a toddler. <laughs> the ball doesn't go any further than like I assume five yards or so, um, and there's very few forwards and stuff like that. It, it, you have to check it out. I, I, I get up the lads' handle now, um, Twitter handles where you can check it. But it is incredible, and it just adds further to the enigma that is Wijnaldum. Well, while you do that, we'll sort of have a little look in general. I, I, this is a point I want to I want to talk about. Look, moving away from individuals at the moment, um, and looking in general at you know six games to go in the title race um Anfield was nervous but you know I think the 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 channeled that nervous energy quite well against Tottenham certainly the crowd they got behind the team can you you know I think on this podcast you know because it's an analytical one we are we do want to deal in things that we can quantify we want to deal with things that are tangible and it's quite hard to quantify or or you know make make worry and nerves and pressure tangible but I just wanted to sort of look at the first half and the second half you said there was a game of two hours there Josh and just you know first half there were fewer backwards passes from Liverpool in the first half than they have on average this season um, and they were just a few passes short of the average into the final third and they had 56% possession 
So they impose themselves first half, they impose themselves, they go one nil up, second half. Just 14 backwards passes, which I found quite interesting in the whole second half. But I think these are quite relevant. Progressive passes were way down. So the first half there was 47, the second half there was 31. Passes into the final third and pass, progressive passes were both well below the usual for the second half. Now, game situation can change. That The fact that Liverpool are 1-0 up, I also think that the opposition changed that. I think Tottenham imposed themselves on Liverpool in the second half and... and you know, they almost had a free hit because, you know, they had nothing to lose. Um, you go away to Anfield and, and, and you try your best for a point. But that second half there, they basically stopped passing to the final phase and they stopped making progressive runs and passes in that second half. Is that, you know, is that a tactic or is that nerves? What do you think? Is that is that a way that we can sort of quantify nerves and, and pressure or is it just the match situation and that's, it is what it is? The second half, naturally, will just be a little bit more nervy than the first because we're getting closer to the full-time whistle. Yeah, I wouldn't personally go down the nerves route. Mm. Um, I, that's, that, that's more of like a... It's, too it's a narrative, isn't it? Yeah, it's, an, yeah, it's a narrative. Yeah, it's too that's what I mean. We want, we want to quantify things on, on this podcast, but I was just wondering if there is a metric that we can almost sort of see, you know, yeah, this is how nervous they were. I mean, hang on a sec, let me get this up now. Our possession share in the match, for example. So, oh, my scouts nightmare. Slug me out. Slug me out. Great. Uh, so, I'll just say what I've got written down then. Um, so, our possession share, anyway, yeah, it, it gradually decreased once we got a lead. Mm. Once we got a lead, I think we were at about 50, 60% around that. I'll get it up now, I be like a split second thing on. Yeah, it's fine. We'll, we'll just play some, uh, some music. <laughs> right, so, when we took the lead we were on about 69% possession mm-hmm. which is fairly high you know against Spurs in a big a top 6 game as well and, you know I'm looking at the curve now and it just gradually decreased consistently up until half time it goes a tiny bit up in the second half but when Spurs scored their equaliser we're on 35% possession so and then once they scored that equaliser we shoot up then and end the game on 52% mm. so it it tells me that it's almost like a game state. I don't know if it's a tactic. I don't know if it'll be a direct ploy, but it's relative to game state. Is it natural? Is it just natural yeah, that teams so. drop back when they're winning 1-0? I think so. And we, we did that against, against Spurs at Wembley as well, and it worked perfectly. They were, they were making constant mistakes. We had all kinds of counter-attacks. RxG was something like 2.97, I think mm. it was, on the day, and they had... They had less than one, I think, if I remember correctly. Um, and we just done them on the break constantly. But at Anfield, surprisingly, Spurs kept their heads and they did pen us in. We couldn't get out. And I noticed before as well, I was having a little look. Um, our average passes per possession was down a fair amount. Our average passes per possession is about six. Um, this was less than four. Mm. Uh, and I was looking at the rest of the season based on the Premier League and the only matches that come close in terms of that low was Everton away which was as messy as anything can you remember that game yeah, that, yep. was, that was super messy that game Arsenal away which was similar it, yeah, it was that was a, a bit of a mess that yeah. was Fabinho's first start as a lone number 6 mm. as well and it was a bit all over the place and the only other one was Spurs away um, same team 
but obviously we've done a lot better to to counter attack there. Obviously the counter attack was wearing. Um no, he's slightly case to that game, just just throwing yeah, that out there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but I think it suggests that like no, I don't know. I don't know. maybe it's a case of in in that Spurs game we you know concede the possession with the lead again, but we just counter better. And in the other two games, the Everton away, the Arsenal away, that was just a case of it just being messy, just all over the place. We couldn't get a foothold in the game. And in the Arsenal game, we did sustain a lead, though. So that that could be related to it, but the Everton game was just crazy. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was similar to the Everton game, the second half especially. Yeah, definitely. That could have been. Again, it's it's one of them where we're not, we don't really want to just say, oh, it's all nerves. Oh, you know, they're starting to... If I, you know, I, I want to ban the B word, the bottle word on, on this podcast, but you know, people will would have inevitably talked about that if Liverpool would have not, you know, got that late winner. Um, One thing I, I have noticed relative to nerves is I think against Fulham and against Spurs, we've got to a point in the match, maybe around the hour mark, where we almost look as though we just want the game to end mm. and we're ready to just leave with the win. Um, and we kind of, the game kind of just kind of like floats and drifts and stuff. No foot on the throat is what yeah, you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and both times we ended up conceding. Mm-hmm. And then we've had to have like a late surge to get to get the win again. But both times, our past two matches, we've had a lead around the hour mark. And as I said, it's, I've just got the vibe that we, we want to just leave, hurry up and get the win and, and get out of there. Like The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. It's interesting. It's, you know, as I say, it's not something that's quantifiable, nerves, but, you know, you do wonder what, what part that will play. Uh, speaking of nerves as well, um, Virgil van Dijk doesn't suffer from them whatsoever. So just a couple of numbers here. Six, cleared, six out of six successful clearances. Five out of five header clearances. He won a, his one aerial duel. Not sure about that. Um, we're not sure about the aerial dual data from when we get it, so we don't use it that often on this podcast. I know there's been a few people who have asking, you know, when can we talk about defensive stats more? But it's just a little. We're unsure. We're still trying to figure that out. Um, but let's just talk about the Sissoko moment, Josh. You know, from a tactical point of view. Um, but I also want to give a shout out personally to to Allison and Robertson. Um, because yes, Van Dijk does a hell of a lot right there. But if you actually sort of stop it at the moment where Van Dijk has made Sissoko make his mind up, he can't go to Son because Robertson's covering him. And the reason he's allowed Sissoko to do this is because he trusts Alisson Becker on a, in a one-on-one situation against Moussa Sissoko on his left foot. So yes, again, it's about the collective, isn't it? It's a fantastic bit of individual brilliance from Virgil Van Dijk. We'll talk about what he said in a, in a moment, you know, after the game. But yes, brilliant individual moments. But at the same time, it's about the collective and, and people helping him out at the very last moments as well. Yeah, it was just an absolutely superb piece of defending from Van Dijk. Uh, a couple of couple of months ago, maybe November time, something like that, in the international break, he was the Netherlands played France. Is this the Mbappe one? Yeah, yeah. Um, one on one. Mbappe against Van Dijk and Van Dijk just kind of dominated the the duel. He led Mbappe towards the byline, I think, and he ended up having a shot, but Van Dijk just blocked it. I think it went out for the corner maybe or something, but most defenders in isolation like that 
would just collapse or make a bad decision or dive in. For Van Dijk to manage that situation, the 84th minute, one all, you're going for the league, you're up against two opposing players, backtracking. Honest to God, no words for for the way you manage it. Um, it was almost like he, he he was. I don't know how he he assessed the situation so calmly and so quickly. I, I, I'm not even sure if he's aware who's behind him. People have said like he didn't want the ball to go to Son. I'm not sure how he was overly aware that it was even Son. How does he? I even... mean, after the game, he said it, but that might just be sort of the adrenaline. Because after the game, in the interview, he said, "I know Son puts away oh. those sorts of chances, but he might just be sort of saying that because he sees him there post match with this, with with this, the the action in front of him on the screen. You don't know what's going through his mind at yeah. that time, do you? No, I've got the clip up here. He does look at Son. Does he? Yeah, he fully, <laughs> he, he fully assesses the situation. Unbelievable, this. Good players um, don't make great managers, do they? Well, great great players don't necessarily make good managers. But I mean, he's got a he's got a chance, hasn't he? In about twenty years' time, the way he can read the game, a football game is remarkable. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna sound like the typical biased Liverpool fan here, and I deliberately haven't really tweeted much about it because of that. But he's firmly the best defender I've ever seen. I'm not the oldest person on the planet, but I've not seen a defender as complete. As this player, I'm not yeah. not not in Liverpool shirts. Not no, personally, not, not in a Liverpool shirts. Not even no. in 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 world football for me. He's he's got absolutely everything, and not a single weakness off the top of my head. The only, in fact, it's not even a weakness. The only criticism anybody ever has of him is that he's a bit too casual. It's but too for easy me, for him. Yeah, for me that is not a weakness. For me, that just stems from how confident he is, how laid back he is, composed. But he's he's the best defender I've ever seen. Genuinely. And I'm not getting carried away saying that. And I've thought it all season. But he's just... He was up against um, Bayern's back line a couple of weeks ago, wasn't he? And he was up against Hummels and... Sule. Sule. But they both have weaknesses. Van Dijk had all of their strengths. Aerial duels, strength, um, ability to dominate one-on-ones, aggression... Position everything, as well as having speed, um, composure on the ball, ability to switch to play, leadership, height. He's 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 got absolutely everything. If you were to make a centre back in a lab, it would be to a T. Van Dijk, honest to God. Um, I don't want to sound like I'm exaggerating. No, he's, no, he's genuinely this good. I really, it it, it can't be stressed enough. He is ridiculous. They've had Southampton's pants down, actually, haven't they? Seventy-five yeah, million. Was, when, yeah. like, it's one of those where the price actually becomes. You, you know, you look at say Ronaldo when he went to Real Madrid for eighty million. Unbelievable, unbelievable deal for Real Madrid. Seventy-five million for Virgil Van Dijk. He's, he's he's he is priceless, isn't he? He's he, he is an unreal player. Um, y- you know, we wouldn't be close to where we are now. I, I without, was just, I was just about player. to say because what he does as well. Um, is how the the player sat beside them plays as well. I think at times, to be honest, it allows Matip to step out because ultimately Van Dijk on his own is still worth two centre-backs. Yeah. I mean, I'm just looking at this This is so cool chance here. I, we don't know fully yet whether it's a, it's a mistake on Weisscout's part, mm. but Weisscout gave the chance for Sissoko 0.01. 
XG. Um, now, Understat went 0.12, just, just yeah, to throw it out Understat there. Understat went 0.12. But the thing is, in the past, you know, when I've been getting into analytics and things like that, I've thought myself that there might be the odd little mistake in reference to certain shots being overweighted or underweighted. And usually when I delve into it, or <clears throat> I ask the creator of the model, for example, it usually stems from how sophisticated your model is. So not every model, not every XG model will give the same chance, the same weight, the same value. It's just based on certain things, and some models are sophisticated enough to know whether a player is off balance, to know whether a player is hitting the ball with his weak foot, which Sissoko did, didn't yes. he? I think he's, left foot, he's right foot, mm-hmm. isn't he? So if Scout is more sophisticated than the average model, then it may have considered that he's hitting it with his left foot, being closed down by Van Dijk. Um, and, you know, these things can influence the value that he's given. So, But, but anyway, regardless, for Van Dijk to, to influence that situation, the two-on-one, and it results in such a low-quality shot, it's just absolute top defending. There's no other word for it. There's, I mean, I've obviously said too much already about him, but <laughs> he, he is... Elite. I'm enjoying the love lesser. It's great. Honestly, he's absolutely elite. Uh, just a really quick word about someone who's not necessarily elite, but I actually think he's he's. He, I've been I've been fascinated by this player in recent weeks. Uh, to be honest, in the past couple of months, to be fair, Divock Origi, Um The past two games now, he's come on late with the scores at one one. Um, and just throw this this statistic out here. So in the two one win against Fulham and the two one win against Tottenham. Um, for around about 30-35 minutes uh, time on the pitch he's attempted 9 dribbles um, and uh, completed 7 of them um, He, I think it was uh, 4 attempted dribbles against Spurs he won 2 corners uh, the second of which which actually led to the, to the winning goal um, he's not creating chances uh, although we did against Bayern he sort of got what, what people can call a second assist you know he's passed it to Salah who then passed it to Mane to, to nod home um, but he's not necessarily creating chances you know his, his, his XA and his, his key passes are zilch he's not scoring goals of course unless they're from a yard out against Everton um, so what is he doing that's so eye-catching. Uh, am I, am, are my eyes deceiving me or is he actually becoming just a real sort of option off the bench in these sorts of situations at 1-1 or, or when the game isn't won, ultimately? Yeah, well, he's a, he's a strange one, Rigi, because uh, I don't really know where this is stem from. And he seems to be coming on and playing on the left as yep. well after being a striker for his whole career, as far as I'm aware. He played a little bit on the left when he was coming through at Lille I think I think he yeah. was sort of yeah. but yeah, that's true. in general he's always been a striker at Liverpool hasn't he yeah but I mean maybe he's being used over there because he's being deemed as the you know the closest profile that we've got to Mane mm. which stresses our need to invest in the summer yeah, yeah. because they're not really on the same level but you know in terms of they're both fast they're both right footed both inclined to cut inside that kind of thing um, but one thing I've been impressed with him is how he, he's reminded me of Shakiri when Shakiri first started this season. Whenever Shakiri was given the chance earlier in the season, he was super alert, super direct whenever he got the ball. Um, 
and committed as well to the cause. Even though he was coming on as a substitute, and Arigi is showing exactly that. He's very, very alert to what's going on. He's not just coming on to make up the numbers. Um, take for example Sturridge. When Sturridge has come on this season, I haven't really been overly impressed. Just because he, maybe it's just his playing style, but he's come across a bit. Um, languid, languid. I yeah. think there's that. Yeah, yeah I, I also think he's a player who doesn't quite know what type of player he is anymore, and I don't think Klopp does either. Yeah, is he a nine? Is he a ten? Is he what? What, what is he? Yeah, but when you show on when when them players are introduced, it's usually to find the goal for us, mm. and Arigi shows that agency, the agency that Shakiri was showing earlier in the season, and the agency that Sturridge doesn't show for me. Um, so you know if he can continue with that, and he if he can come on and really have that mindset that he's demonstrating whereby he's absolutely desperate to influence something, then, you know, I'm fine with him being introduced because I didn't actually think early in the season that he was going to play any part. As, as I say, nine, nine, nine attempted dribbles, seven of them successful. It's, it's, but, but absolutely zero in terms of actually setting up chances or goals or, or, or even having shots on target. Um, it feels like it's one to keep an eye on, certainly. Um, hope, I mean, hopefully Liverpool won't find themselves at 1-1 um, with 10 minutes to go and they need to feel the need to bring them on. But it, I think it's one to keep an eye on on that left-hand side because, you know, maybe it was that Watford game sort of opened Klopp's eyes to what he could do that down on that, uh, on that left-hand side. But no, it's very, very interesting. Don't think he'll start against Southampton. I think I'll throw it out there. Hopefully we don't feel the need to throw him on with 15 minutes to go to rescue another three points for Liverpool. So Friday night, all right. It's uh, Jürgen Klopp, the German Jürgen Klopp against the, the Alpine Jürgen Klopp. Uh, Ralf Hasenhüttl, the Austrian. Um, first and foremost, what, what do we know about him? What do we know about his style of play? Well, I was saying this to you before the pod, wasn't I? Because he's come from the Red Bull network um, Red Bull have obviously got Leipzig Salzburg New York mm. clubs like that and they've got those clubs ultimately to promote their own brand so if you're promoting your own brand you've got to have a clear identity there that represents your brand obviously Red Bull are an energy drink so they want a team that epitomises that um, so Red Bull teams Leipzig Salzburg have developed a reputation, rightly so, for being very direct, very intense, pressing and all that stuff. And Hassan Huttle came from... I mean, he just left, but his last club was Leipzig. So it's difficult to determine whether that playing style that we saw in Germany is his own or if it's, you know, derived as a result of Red Bull. But it's probably a mixture of the two, to be honest. Um, going by that and going by what we've seen of Southampton so far, I'd suggest he is a high pressing coach. When it, what? Sorry, no, not a high pressing coach. That's, there's a difference. He's he's into counter pressing. That's not the same as high pressing. They're not going to basically stand on your toes when no, Joe Matip's got the ball. Yeah, they're not going to be pressing us from the off. They're not going to mm. be pressing the likes of Allison. They're yeah. cautious with it. But if they lose the ball in the high moment, for example, they will press there to um, immediately regain it, immediately create a scoring chance. But, yeah, they're t- tactically flexible as well. We know that. Um, 3-4-2-1 against Spurs recently when they won 3-2, was it? 2-1? 2-1. 2-1. And they played a 3-5-2 before that against United away. And they played a 3-5-2 against Arsenal too. And at half-time, apparently switched to a 4-4-2. So, 
similar to Spurs in the, in the sense that they they appear to be proactive with their adjustments. And no, it'll be a test. It'll be a test. I'm just throwing out a couple of numbers here in terms of uh, PPDA, which is um, passes per defensive action. Yeah. Um, they're 11th. Basically, that just gauges pressing, doesn't it? So they're sort of mid-table for pressing, how many passes they allow. But that, that will consider Mark Hughes, won't it? Well, I was you know just I mean? about to make this, this point. So they're 7th in challenge intensity. Um, and they make more interceptions than any other team per 90 minutes. But that's for the whole season, as you say. Hassan Hootle only came in in December, but given how garbage they were under Mark Hughes and how little identity they had by the time Hughes left, I feel like, and sadly we can't actually um, you know, filter this for, for only when Hassan Hootle came, but it feels to me they should be higher if he's been in charge for the whole of the season because I, I don't feel like Mark Hughes was anybody who was going to be high in challenge intensity necessarily or have them intercept more more balls per 90. To me, this feels like already this is sort of Hassan Hootle's numbers. Um, so, you know, that sort of bears fruit in what you say in terms of, you know, they, they are going to try and... They're, they're going to try and basically do what Liverpool do. I, I'm not saying they're going to be a mini Liverpool, but I think they're going to try and counter when... when when if any loose balls go, those second balls are going to be massive. I hope to God it's not windy on Friday night because Klopp's head might actually fall off. <laughs> um, but you know, just a little look at how they've been doing under Hassan Hootle. Then he came in in December. It's funny because I remember last season. I think that traditionally a team who's always needed a striker who can put the ball in the back of the net, and that's why they signed Danny Ings, who is eligible ineligible against Liverpool, obviously because he's still technically their player. Um, but, you know, they're actually outperforming themselves defensively, um, but they're still mid-table defensively um, by XG conceded. Um, they're scoring more than they actually should in terms of, of XG, um, and they actually have more points um, than they should have according to the XG metric. Um, so, you know, they are maybe doing a little bit better than they should be, but at the same time, there's been a marked improvement. It's not going to be easy, is it, on Friday? I, don't, I think this might. I think we spoke about Wofford a couple of weeks ago, Josh, and they were in between the Man United and the um, the Everton games, and we were a little bit cautious, saying this might be the one where you know everyone's just sleeping on it a little bit. Liverpool obviously went and won five 0 to prove us all wrong, but this is the one in between Tottenham and Chelsea. Obviously, you've got Porto in there as well. This is the one where they can't really afford to take their eye off the ball. No, it's one. It's one that you could easily. Um, underestimate let's say simply because of the two games that it's inside but they, they will certainly give us a game they'll press us but it's, it's worth noting as well that although they've picked up results recently against Spurs and hang on a minute who was the other team he was another top team wasn't he Man United well, no, they, they were winning against Man United and then lost 3-2 they lost to oh, Arsenal yeah, they lost but, they, but yeah. they, they won away at Brighton and not many non-top six teams win at Brighton yeah yeah that was it Um. But it's worth saying anyway that they have scored a fair few worldies inside that and you won't score them every week. Feeds into the XG basically, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. these are low percentage shots and they don't regularly go in basically. Um, and there's an element of luck when they do go in. So that's where you, you look at things like over overperformance and underperformance and those goals, as key as they've been, they're not sustainable. Um, so... You know, although they scored two against Spurs, two against United, Jan Valery scored one from 40 yards, I think, and then the other one was free kick, was it? Prowse, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, and then War Prowse scored a free kick against Spurs as well. Mm. So, you know, it's certainly going to be a challenge, but I would expect Liverpool to to win. One thing I have got down is that because of their, their pressing approach, because these put pressure on the ball and they don't, don't really give you much, it's very compact, don't really give you much space and things, it's important that we've got players who can deal with that. Um, press resistance, we call it. So if you're pressurised on the ball, you're the type of player to be able to get out of it. Moussa Dembele, basically. We have Naby Keita, who's great at that. Fabinho, who's better at that than Henderson, better at that than Milner. And Wijnaldum's also very good at it. That would be... We found the one thing that we know that he's good at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Only messing. <laughs> we actually like Wijnaldum. But yeah, he, he's, he's great at getting out of a tight situation, isn't he? Yeah, but that would be... I, I doubt we'll go with changes to that extent. But that'd be that some midfielder. I, I, I want to see that midfield at some point. Probably not in the title Probably not in April in a title race, but I want to see that midfield at some point. Would that, would that would be a midfield three that if you pressed, you would not get the ball. Mm. And it'd also be a midfield three that you'd, you'd be inclined to think it'd feel less pressure. They'd play with more freedom, I think. Less shackles on them. Mm. Just because of like... You know, I've said through the weeks to people that like the likes of Henderson and Milner, they'll be much more aware of how big of a deal this title race is to Liverpool. Henderson's been been three one with us before, and it you know it, it collapsed at the last moment. Um, and there's benefits to that, but there's also negatives too. It can put unnecessary pressure on you, and it can you know certain things like that. Whereas the likes of Abi Keita and Fabinho, they're new, and although they'll know it's a big deal, they won't feel that weight on the shoulders, and they'll, they'll play with the freedom and against the high pressing team. Keep saying high pressing. They're not. Well, they're not a high pressing team. You know what I mean, though. Against an intense pressing team, who are going to force or, or try to force mistakes out of you. You know, you need midfielders who are competent on the ball and good in tight spaces. And we have those midfielders. It just remains to be seen whether we use them or not. Really interesting. In terms of their um, their threats, and just noted down two names here. They're, they're basically the two most creative forces. Um, they lead the way in both key passes uh, and crosses. Um, that's James Will Prowse and Matt Target. One's uh, left wing back because I, I think they'll probably play three five two five three two against Liverpool. Will Prowse is obviously one of those central midfielders who likes to drift out wide and then whip those balls in. So, you know, I think it's going to be pretty clear what type of game style they're going to implement um, with the ball. And it just means that Van Dijk, who says he will be fifth, but it's absolutely essential, isn't it, that Van Dijk is fifth for this game? Because I think we can expect a few aerial battles. Yeah, it's. I mean, if you look at Allison as well, we're the only team in the league, I think, I believe that haven't conceded from outside the box yet. Which is oh, just... we looked at. Did you look into that in the end? Because we yeah, were talking yeah. about it last week. Yeah, we're the only team to not concede from outside the box. That stems towards War Prowse, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, just another note as well regarding like analytics and stuff like that, stats and things that we talk about on this show. It's been brought into football largely for recruitment and squad building and things like that. And what, in in terms of squad building, what that's about really, it, it's about adding tools to, you know, a, a manager's disposal, so that he's he, he's capable of solving every problem that's thrown at him really, and. 
one one tool it, it it can be viewed as a tool, underrated tool, is a set piece specialist, and War Prowse is that. And although he might not be the most talented player, just by including a player of that quality in terms of set pieces in your eleven, just gives you an opportunity to to score for nothing. Mm. So it, it might it sounds simplistic, but it would almost make sense from a Liverpool perspective to just say. Do not give fouls away in and around the box. It's not worthy. The better almost progressing forwards or yeah. let them whip the ball. Let let, yeah, them, let them give the ball to Jan Valery on the right hand side and see what he can do. Yeah, because he, he scored six goals this season. Well Prowse, three inside the box, three outside. Um I'm betting those three outside the free kicks. Mm. And you don't even want to give them, them that opportunity. Problem is what we've talked about in this show. The the aggressive nature of our midfield players, even Fabinho when he's playing, we have got that in us in terms of giving away fouls and stuff like that and being too aggressive. And it's dangerous in those areas up against Ward Prowse. He's, he's, that's my biggest concern. I got a set piece, and that, that that says a lot about the opponent. That the biggest concern for me is conceding the free kick. As just a stat to to add to that, actually, um, you know, second fewest progressive passes in the league. So, as you say, I don't think they're going to be necessarily creating anything wonderful or majestic. I think it's going to be, as you say, a set piece. But look, Liverpool have dealt with that for a lot of the season. Um, I, I think, f- from my perspective, I think if we don't concede from a set piece and we don't concede from a mistake that we've been pressed into, mm. we keep a clean sheet. I don't think they create a goal from open play against us. I'd, I'd, I'd go as far as saying that. Fingers crossed. Um, and you think, I mean, they should win, shouldn't they? they as you said, they should win. Yeah, I'd yeah. expect a win, yeah. Fingers crossed. Thanks very much for that, Josh. We will uh, be back next week uh, when we will be looking back at Southampton. Uh, not quite sure what day we'll be doing yet because obviously Liverpool play Porto on the Tuesday. Uh, so it might be a little bit after the Porto game. So we look back at Southampton, look back at Porto and then look ahead to uh, to Chelsea. And I know Josh can't wait to get stuck into the Timiriti Osari. He loves <laughs> It's one of his favourite topics. So uh, join us next week. Thanks very much for joining us this week. Uh, fingers crossed yet again that Liverpool can maintain their lead at the top of the Premier League. Have a good weekend, everybody. Cheers. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.